timings, everything. I, I had a, a really smart guy one time. I asked him, I said, you made a lot of money in the oil and gas business. What do you wish you knew when you were my age? And he said, well, oil business isn't complicated. You just got to keep your name in the phone book. And I was like, no, wait a second. What? And then I, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, you, you got to like, you got to survive um, because the timing of crashes in a commodity business are, are very, very important. Welcome to Alternative Universe. This is a show for financial advisors, alternative fund managers, and those who want to navigate the diverse landscape of alternative investments and explore opportunities that lie beyond the conventional. In today's episode, we have the privilege of sitting down with Jordan Strebeck, the co-founder and managing partner of Fortress Energy, a private energy investment firm headquartered in Midland, Texas. Uh, Jordan studied agriculture, economics, and personal finance as an undergrad at Texas Tech and as a graduate of Harvard Business School, where he attended on the Frist Fellowship. Jordan, welcome to Alternative Universe. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Steve. Yeah, man. No, I'm really stoked. I on my last name. That's a telemarketer's dead giveaway, but you nailed it. <laughs> well, we talked about this a little bit before. I, I have an uncommon last name myself. I tend to get in the habit of just asking people, am I pronouncing this correctly? Like, yes, it is Smith. You are correct. <laughs> you are, you are correct. You've got it, Johnson. Yes. You yes. Know, we emphasize the J. Yes, yes. <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Right on, Jordan. You know, it was a first for me, uh, introducing someone who, who attended Harvard Business School on a Frist Fellowship. How'd you get that? Tell us about it. <laughs> it's a God thing. God thing. So- when I went to HBS, I had left the private sector about three years prior to go work for my alma mater, to go work for the chancellor of the university system there, which was an amazing opportunity. I loved every minute of it, but I, they paid me nothing. I took a significant pay cut to go do that, which is actually advice I give people in that stage of life today is if you ever have the chance to go trade dollars for experience, go do it. Make that trade. Um, your your career is a lot longer than you think. Um, so I probably wouldn't have been able to go to HBS had I not gotten that fellowship. And so I'm very, very grateful to the Frist family to this day. They, they do uh, a handful, I think maybe like 10 a year where, where uh, their fellowship provides for all of your books and tuition and, and uh, everything except, except your rent. So it, it was, it was a huge, huge blessing and always be grateful to the Frist, to the Frist family for, for making HBS possible for a farm boy like me. That's pretty cool, man. I think it goes, goes to show that uh, there's a lot of opportunity out there if we take a little bit of action. I'm sure the Frist family didn't come knocking on your door saying, hey, do you want a, a fellowship? <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the office at HBS was great about letting us know what, what you could apply for and really, really grateful for that. And they were actually really great. They would come and have dinner with us once or twice a year and really great encouragement, encouraging folks. So if you know a Frist, thank them on behalf uh, of me. I've sent them a couple of letters over the years, but tell them thank you. That's very cool, man. And did you did you come up to Boston? Are you living here? Or did you do this remote? No, I we we lived there. So we were there from 2012 to 2014. It was in uh, I would say an insanely sort of momentous time to be there. Mm -hmm. Even just little things like. The Red Sox won the World Series while we were there. The Patriots won the Super Bowl while we were there. I think I, I can't. The Bruins might have won the 
Stanley Cup while we were there. I don't think the Celtics did their part, but and there's and always the one game, outlier. <laughs> there's always one, and I I could have gotten that somewhat incorrect, but you know the the marathon bombing happened mm. while we were there. We were at that marathon. Wow, um, and like it's, several of my classmates were involved in the marathon and, and including a couple that were like applying tourniquets at the in and around the bomb site my classmate of mine sarah aurora and i had just gotten elected like a week or two prior had just gotten elected as president of the student body just i, I started thinking back to that time and it was it was crazy mm. just trying to make sure that all 900 uh some odd people in our class were present and accounted for because so many people were at the marathon bombing and then the lockdowns and there was even some crazy like Hurricane Nemo, I think, or one of the winter storms shut down the city. It was the first time Harvard Business School had canceled classes for snow like wow. ever. And wow. so just it was it was a crazy time, crazy time to be there 2012 to 2014. But we loved it. My wife and and I and our oldest two sons had a blast while we were there and uh, great, great memories from Boston. That's that's very cool, man. We, um, you know, we had the opportunity when we moved to Boston, which is I live on the South Shore now. We had the opportunity when we moved here, we rented a place right next door to the Harvard campus. So we were right on Beacon Street in Somerville. Okay. Yep. And so when I would commute into the city, I would walk through Harvard every day um, to yep. go to the red line to come into the city. And I just remember the feeling every day, every day walking through that campus, you get the feeling of just being surrounded by people who were inspired and extremely ambitious. It kind of, I felt like it elevates you. And yeah. so I always encourage people who have an opportunity, again, to to be around a site like that. An institution like Harvard is pretty incredible. But even just walking through every day, um, it rubbed off on me just a little. Just a little bit. Yeah, no, it's a special <laughs> place, man. Especially the business school campus. I love it, being on that side of the river. And it's it's so open. And, and it just really does. It, it feels special. This is actually in May. I was talking to one of my classmates last night. It's going to be our 10-year reunion right. this may so we're excited to get back and show all our kids around and uh it's gonna be gonna be fun very fun well right on man you know before harvard you had a little bit of experience there too you know uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started and maybe even why you got interested in financial services to begin with as long as i can remember honestly steve this might be the first time you've heard this answer but i grew up on a farm and we so i, I would drive a tractor most days, especially in the summer, I was pretty much on a tractor most of the time. And the, the tractor that I generally was on only had AM radio. And so I, I grew up listening to Dave Ramsey and I thought that <laughs> made a lot of sense. And so I thought I want to do financial planning. Like I want to do uh, what Dave Ramsey does. I've always been pretty thrifty and uh, pretty inclined to numbers. And, and so I just thought that's what I wanted to do. And so went to Texas Tech, studied agricultural and applied economics. One thing that a lot of people don't know about Texas Tech is it has the top personal financial planning program in the country. It was one of the first, the leadership there, Vicki Hampton, Bill Gustafson, uh, Dina Katz, John Salter, all, all, all the folks that have built that program. It's, it's a monster in the financial planning space. So they convinced me to come do, they had a 30 hour minor and I had some extra scholarship money. I'd finished a little early. And so I went and did my minor in personal financial planning, which was a game changer for me because that that's where I met Harold Avinsky and Dina Katz. They were two of my professors there and I was able to con them into giving me a job offer. And so they hired me in May of 2008. My timing is impeccable. And so they were actually getting ready to start a Texas office. They'd been based in Coral Gables, Florida and were commuting back and forth. 
And so they hired myself and two grad students from tech and a couple of other professors. And we launched this Texas office and we're going to try to sort of service a lot of their clients that weren't in Florida. So what an interesting time to be in that business. Um, obviously, I, I hadn't, hadn't been there very long, barely figured out where the coffee maker was. By the time the market really started to have what was, you know, in, in hindsight, a very historic year there uh, in, in 08 and, and, and 09. So, but that was a great crucible to kind of learn the business and a great group to, to learn it with. The team at ENK was just top notch, incredibly sharp. One thing that I learned in that experience was that what, what I enjoyed was actually financial counseling, not financial planning, so to speak. Like I, I didn't enjoy constructing portfolios of public equities where it was going to be basically, hey, what's your risk tolerance? And then we're just going to divvy it up here kind of based on equity and, and, and fixed and cash. And that really wasn't my passion is what I learned. What I learned is helping people build budgets and, and, and a lot of these things. And it turns out it's really hard to make money doing that. Like that's not a very lucrative thing. So that shifted to more of a hobby. And I kind of started to get obsessed with this idea of the CAPM equation, just the idea that there had to be ways to outperform the market without taking on excess beta. Like there had to be, and, and it turns out, you know, the obvious answer to that is, well, yeah, you just have to go find where there's an inefficient market or inefficient markets and and you can do that. So that kind of became something that I was already starting at Evinsky and Katz. I was starting to say, hey, guys, like, can we look more at alternatives? Can we look more at private investing? Like, I, I just feel like, you know, there's more out here. And that really wasn't, you know, our lane. As fate would have it, I wound up getting an offer, an opportunity to take a position at Texas Tech working for the chancellor of the university system, like I mentioned earlier. And uh, Harold and Dina were, were happy to give me a two-year leave of absence. They were like, yes. As professors, we think it would be great if you went to work for the chancellor of the university system. Also, don't forget about us when it comes time to, uh, you know, they were in the middle of building a new a new wing at the financial planning uh, over in that department. And so the, it was great. It was a great fit all around. Uh, wound up going to work for him, learned a ton, and never wound up going back to Vinsky and Katz. Had basically that two-year leave of absence kind of came and went. And I decided that I, I wanted to go apply for business school and I wanted to continue exploring that question about yeah. where where there were inefficiencies to be taken advantage of and where we could get some excess alpha without excess beta. That's pretty interesting, man. Yeah, Vinsky and Katz, I mean, you you know more of the history than I do, but I remember it was a very influential firm when I you know, was getting started as well. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I actually believe that program that they set up was the first CFP program for an undergraduate, right? I, they might be. I probably shouldn't know that. It was definitely the first in the country to offer a PhD in personal financial planning. Yeah. And they do a great job of prepping everybody. Matter of fact, when I left the NK, I think I was like three months away from sitting for my CFP. And that's what I thought. I thought I was going to CFP. I was going to get ready to do the CFA, you know, and I, I, thank God I didn't do that. I'm not near smart enough. Yeah. They, they're, they're legends. And, and Dina, like people don't even realize, I mean, you know, Dina was the first woman admitted into Rotary nationwide. Wow. She's an absolute icon. And, and Harold, he is so incredibly wise. And he literally wrote the textbook asset allocation that we used in the financial planning program. And, yeah. and we had such great clients. Danny Kahneman was a client. And so from a financial sort of behavioral psychology standpoint, like that was a huge gift and learned a ton working, working for those guys and still in regular contact. Dina wrote my recommendation to Harvard Business School and I'll always hold them near and dear in my heart. Very cool. Yeah. And, and something else that I, I don't know, I guess maybe more people know this and might not be surprised, but 
you know, Harold also played a big role when we talk about just financial planning software in general. He designed the systems that are used for long-term capital market assumptions that generally power, you know, the forecasting capabilities of these different financial planning tools. So not just design the system, but also updates those capital market assumptions that are used within the planning systems of a lot of the the tools out there that financial advisors are interacting with daily. I don't know if he still does that, but I know that um, through the mid teens, he was. That's amazing. I, you, there, there is no limit to the number of things you could tell me that Harold pioneered that would surprise me. Like, right. yeah, and he actually invented the space shuttle. And I'd be like, what? Uh, that, I didn't know <laughs> that, but that doesn't surprise me. They were so gracious to me and just so, so helpful. It, I, I didn't have any business as a 22, 23 year old kid being able to pick their brains on a daily basis. That was just an, a, a huge honor. That's very cool, man. What a, what a great way to enter into the business. So you, you went on and you went to Harvard Business School, yeah. um, digging into that, you know, that problem. How do we, how do we find more alpha? I imagine led you to where you are today. Tell me about some of those steps. What was your job after uh, Harvard <laughs> Business School? Yeah, well, I had that obsession, but I also had my wife and I had kind of sat down and decided that we wanted to raise our family in West Texas. Like we yeah. didn't really specifically have a town in mind. We just, we wanted to raise our family in West Texas. We like the pace of life out here. And candidly, I'm allergic to humidity. I just absolutely hate humidity with every bone in my body. When I lived in, I lived in DC for a little while during college and I was like, never, 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 never again. Even when I go to Houston for work trips, I'm like, dear Lord, protect me from the humidity. Uh, I, I just can't stand it. So West Texas is perfect for me. So is your wife's we, family from there too? No, it's not necessarily like Midland. We don't have any family here, but the great thing about it was we started looking around and one commonality that I've always, in, in hindsight, every good investment or every good deal that I've done, like it made sense on a napkin. It wasn't terribly complicated. Some of the deals that I've done where I went, man, I, how did I miss that? It's like it had a you know 19 page discounted cash flow model and every knob you could imagine. So what, what drew me to Midland was I was trying to decide my first semester what I wanted to do for an internship in between first and second year of business school. And I was literally talking to a friend who lived in Midland and I said, so it's, it's busy out there. And he's like, oh man, it's blowing and going. And I said, how many, like, how many drilling rigs or whatever are, are there in the, in the Permian Basin? And I think at the time he said like 700. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, and how many wells do they drill a month? And at the time it was like two, two a month. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, how much does it cost to drill a well? It's like, oh, 2 million, 3 million bucks. And I was like, now wait, what? And what's that? I started doing the napkin math in my head and I'm going, hey, that's a lot. That's a lot of money being spent in a, call it 100 mile radius of Midland, Texas. And I don't have to be that smart. I don't have to devise that clever of a mousetrap to go figure out how to get some of those dollars to be diverted into my pocket. And so I've said, I'm going to figure out how to go out there and do something. And so I literally just started cold emailing people, uh, warm emailing people, asking anybody I knew from my time at tech or other places, hey, could you introduce me to this person, that person? Wound up getting a couple of internship offers from some publicly traded companies which is what I thought I needed to do. I needed to go work at a big publicly traded company and actually had kind of an old family friend that I had never met, but you know, kind of a friend of a friend type deal. And I told him, I said, Hey, I'm trying to decide between these companies. What do you think? And he said, don't do that. Come work for us. 
And I said, well, do you, you know, what, tell me about your internship program. He said, we don't have an internship program. We're private equity back, but we'll, you can follow me around and ask me questions and we'll, we'll find you stuff to do. And, and so I thought about it and I, I remember thinking, you know what, like the guy that my parents were his young life leader in high school, he's going to figure out how to make sure I have a good summer and learn a lot. So I went to work for a company called Piedra Resources. It was founded by Chip Smith and Robert Beetrell. They're very subtle and they don't like the spotlight, but they are legends in our business. They just sold Piedra 3 to Oventive for a couple billion dollars. It was like their fifth major exit to a publicly traded company in their careers and they're studs. And so I went to work for them and they introduced me to the concept of they had done mineral and royalty partnerships dating back to the 80s where they would go buy minerals. And I never heard of minerals. I was like, what are minerals? And they started explaining it to me. And as I spent that summer working on their mineral portfolio and learning about it, all the green lights in my head were going off. Like it, it was like these things, these are all the things that I've been looking for. There's an asymmetry to the risk return profile. There are lots of inefficiencies in the market. It's kind of not the biggest, smartest players aren't playing in it every day. This charges my batteries. And so did that over that summer and decided that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and was able, was fortunate enough to work for them during that second year of business school remotely from Boston and, and join the team full-time after I graduated. Oh, wow. That's really cool, man. They kind of introduced you into this idea of managing a portfolio within the area that geographically that you wanted to be located. So you spent a, you spent some time there yeah. and then, you know, what was the impetus to go from that into Fortress? So when I graduated, I graduated in June of 14, moved to Midland, went to work for them full-time, was supposed to be, I think my initial title was to be VP of, of finance. Well, if you're thinking back to 2014, I'd been working there about four months when the price of oil crashed over Thanksgiving. I don't know if you remember that. And so it was like a hundred something dollars when I started and, and then it crashed like a couple months later. And my dad made the joke. He's like, man, you know, you go to work in financial planning in, in May of 08 you got to do this. Like one day someone's going to figure out you're Jonah. They need to throw you off the boat. So I, I was terrified. Honestly, I, Steve, I was like, I was terrified. I was like, they're going to, they're going to fire me for sure. I'm the new guy, the hot rod MBA that doesn't have anything to do. Cause there shockingly is nothing for the finance department to do when you're not buying deals. And when the private equity sponsor is like, you're not going to buy anything when, when the price crashes, I said, Hey guys, can I try to put together some deals or do something like I was just terrified they were going to fire me. And I was like, I got to show them that I'm not just twiddling my thumbs. And so they kind of patted me on the head and said, sure, buddy, go knock yourself out. And it turns out I kind of had a knack for, for building assets, for making trades, for meeting people and hearing what was going on and, and wound up building like a 12,000 something acre block of leasehold in, in Andrews County, Texas, that wound up becoming kind of the, the asset that the operations team developed and, and wound up selling to, to Aventive this past summer. Really, after I'd been doing that for a couple of years, I'd, you know, we'd kind of built that asset and it, effectively it was going to shift into development mode. They were going to be putting rigs on it and drilling it. We had spent most, if not all of our mineral commitment from NCAP. And I, I kind of went to Robert and Chip and just said, hey, guys, I feel like I'm going to be bored out of my mind over this next season. And a good friend of mine from college and I kind of want to go start our own business. What do you think about that? And they asked me to stay on till the end of the year and kind of finish some trades that I was working on. And that wound up lasting a little bit longer. I basically stayed until I finished the things that they asked me to finish working on. 
And then they were very gracious to kind of send me out of the nest to, to start Fortress. And so we launched Fortress seven years ago and, and haven't, haven't looked back. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. And, and what a great opportunity to work with somebody, uh, which you've had the opportunity multiple times in your career now who are just so willing to not only invest in you, but usher you along into the next stage of life. You know, what a blessing when, when people find mentorship or however you want to put it, people who are just so generous to say, Hey, we want to help you succeed. And that success might not include us. And that's, that's cool. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I look back, you know, various professors, Harold and Dina, Steve Pierce, the congressman I worked for in DC, Kent Hance, the chancellor, Chip and Robert at Piedra, and even not just Chip and Robert, but the guys, like the guys on our equity team at NCAP were great. Our, our CFO and our COO at Piedra, all, all those guys were just so great and so happy to, to pour into me and to help me learn. And then it, it's, it really is a special thing when you know, when you leave a place to go do something and, and they're not just kind of booty hurt that you're leaving, but they're actually happy. They're rooting for you. That, that means a lot. And not only that, I mean, that's informed how we've run Fortress. When we've had people that it was time for them to move on to the next chapter of their life, if we're not doing this so that people's lives can be changed, in, including including ours, but our, our teams, yeah. then, you know, that, that feels a lot like we've probably got our incentives just a little bit a little bit backwards. And so that's been that's been something that's had an impact on us just even in how we run our daily business. That's very cool. Yeah, I was I was brought up that way. And, you know, my very first job out of college in a sales role, I remember my mentor at the time, Doug Van Order, said, hey, whether you build a career within this business or another business, I want to help you be better positioned to pursue your goals when you leave here or move out mm -hmm. of this job. Uh, then yep. you did coming into it. And that's my goal. And I've always tried to carry that with me. So sounds like we share yep. that. Now you, you've mentioned uh, your, your family a few times. I'd love to drill into that because, you know, I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about this, but I'd love to hear your story, making that jump from being in a role where it sounded like you had some security, you were making some deals, things were going pretty well. And then all of a sudden you're like, Hey, I think I'm going to start my own thing. <laughs> and that can be scary. And you got a family. Yeah, I can't remember who it was on Twitter at one time. I saw basically say, like, if anybody knew how emotionally taxing it was to start your own business, no one would ever start their own business. Uh, and and it's like that's it's funny because it's true. Like you know, but my my wife, where I would be in life were it not for Brittany, I, I don't even want to think about that. But you know, we've been married. It'll be seventeen years this year. And when I started talking to her about that. She was like, yes, absolutely. Like, this is the way that God has wired you. You're going to be a huge blessing to people by virtue of doing this. And like, I'm behind you 100%. And she did the same thing, by the way, when it came to like, I was had a very lucrative career in the wealth management business, you know, in, in financial planning. And then to go take, I mean, I guess it's, it's public record, but you know, I made like $40,000 as my starting salary at Texas Tech. And they told me that they were like, Hey, we know you're making a lot more than this. We know you're going to take a huge pay cut to go do this. And my wife, she was my sugar mama. She was our, she was our sugar mama uh, for those years. And, and had it not been for that, like we wouldn't have been able to do that. And then there's probably no HBS and there's probably no middle. And so anyway, she deserves way more credit than she would ever be comfortable taking. Yeah. Wow, man. Yeah. And that's what they say is, uh, you know, I just saw 
I forget if it was a tweet or a LinkedIn post the other day, but it said behind every every great entrepreneur is a spouse with solid health insurance. And, uh, <laughs> That's pretty and good. I, I love it, man, because it's so true. And and how often these partnerships, you know, really do go deeper than even than even sometimes I think those involved think about like you get that confidence when other things are taken care of when your household's taken care of. I mean, I've yep. been in this startup world for coming up on 15 years now this is my third third go with a new company and i wouldn't be able to do it if i didn't have confidence in my in my wife billy and her taking care of our children and just knowing that all of that's good and i can put my head down and work and focus and having those people behind us is so important yeah no and even the number of times that it's like you know when you're starting your own business like there is no the buck stops with you and and there are plenty of nights where you don't just get to leave just because it's quitting time yeah. And so the the number of times that I was at the office, especially in those early days, late, late, and the number of times that I would come home, eat dinner, help put the kids to bed, and then be right back in the foxhole, she deserves some sort of some sort of medal for yeah. all, all the all the slack that she that she's picked up over the years. At the end of the day, that's part of what I think in in marriage. You you look at successful marriages, at marriages that are healthy and thriving, and they're generally comprised of two people that are trying to outserve the other and, mm. and think more about the other than about themselves. And I think that my wife is a, is a shining constant example of that. And what's funny is that spurs me on to want to be, to want to be more servant hearted to her. So anyway, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful gift, even though she doesn't, she doesn't put co-founder on her resume for fortress. She probably should. Yeah. That's great. That's a good story. And I'll put that out there to our audience as a yeah. challenge takeaway of this episode, man. Bring that service mentality into your relationships, whether it's Absolutely. whether it's with your spouse or your colleagues or people you run into when you order a coffee. It it really just changes your changes your perspective on life, man. When we show Absolutely. up and we look at what we can bring rather than what we can take. Yep. You no know. question about it. You got a couple of kids too, man. Yeah, man, we got a couple of those knuckleheads running around. So we, we're we're in a fun stage of life. We have a sixth grade boy, a third grade boy, a second grade girl, and a kindergarten boy. So yeah. we are in full time Uber phase of parenting. We're just yeah. we're driving kids every which way, and it's been a sweet season. Getting to you know with my sixth grader, it's like you know I've coached him the last handful of years in football, basketball, baseball, and now it's like. I'm coaching him in basketball right now. He's aged out a little league and I'm like, man, I'm about to be done coaching this dude and he's going to be in, in junior high, you know, uh, next year. And so, and then juxtaposing that with our kindergartner, he's like, where are my pants? Uh, and we're like, well, no one knows you're the fourth child. And the, and the truth is no one, no one is tracking this. So if you would have left without pants, no one would have noticed until you got to school. Uh, you know, there's such a gap and it's, it, which makes it really sweet. So yeah, we got got those four and they keep us on our toes. You know, the other thing is an entrepreneur, like when when things are tough, like you're gonna have ups and downs. Anytime you're building things, anytime you're 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 trying to build anything that's worth building, you're gonna have ups and downs. And you know, what's great about having a family and community, whether that's with your church, your neighborhood, where, wherever, like man, I think back to COVID. COVID was a was a tough time for everybody, but man, you're in the energy business. March and April, May of 2020 were about as about as nerve-wracking as it gets. 
I remember that that being the first time in my life that I had ever struggled at all with with anything resembling anxiety. And it wasn't because I was worried about me, it was because I, I was worried about, man, what's this going to mean for our investors? I remember let's, having- Let's drill into that a little bit. Like, what was the cause there? I don't know that everybody's super yeah. familiar with how COVID and those, especially those early months of uncertainty were affected. Well, you know, timing, timing's everything. I, I had a, a really smart guy one time. I asked him, I said, you made a lot of money in the oil and gas business. What do you wish you knew when you were my age? And he said, well, oil business isn't complicated. You just got to keep your name in the phone book. And I was like, now wait a second, what? And then I, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, you, you got to like, you got to survive um, because the timing of crashes in a commodity business are, are very, very important. Well, you know, when March of 2020 hit and there were lockdowns starting, and then at the same time that weekend, some of y'all will remember the weekend uh, that Saudi and Russia decided to get into a little price war, have a little fun. They said, don't threaten me with a good time. And then they did. And so when, when, when we showed up, when markets opened that Sunday night, I can't remember what oil ran down to it. It wound up getting down into the single digits. It, it theoretically, actually one day on, I think April 20th, it went negative. Theoretically, it didn't go negative on the spot on the physical market. But so, you know, for us, that, that had a major impact on two of our funds. We had just raised our second mineral fund in 2000, like early 2018, late 2017. And we'd had some pretty good outcomes in that fund. And we were actually on the one yard line, like had a verbal agreement to sell that, the, all the remaining assets in that fund on Thursday preceding that weekend. And then oil slid like five or 10% on that Friday because I think people knew it was going about to come down. And so they postponed signing till Monday just to kind of get through the weekend. Everybody was in a foul mood on Friday and we were like, okay, we didn't think anything of it. And then the crash happened on Sunday. Obviously that deal never happened. Now, the beauty of minerals is we just said, okay, we'll wait. It, it was not a big deal. That that fund still wound up being a fantastic outcome. But more worrisome was we had just raised in 2019 a leasehold and working interest fund. And that, like you have primary term obligations, like you, you know, a lot of these primary term leases that you would take would only have a three-year time period for you to actually commence drilling activity. So if you've taken primary term leases, you know, in 2019, and then what happens in early 2020 happens. You're sitting there going, oh man, this could, this could get ugly in, in a hurry. In, in hindsight, it wound up being a huge blessing. And especially in that leasehold fund, that, that allowed us to do some really extraordinary things by virtue of really of our investors believing in us. But that was a terrifying time because all of a sudden there, there was no liquidity in the market. Nobody wanted to talk about oil and gas at all. You had no chance of getting any, anything done, hardly buy or sell for a couple months there. It was just complete gridlock. Yeah, that was that was terrifying, but it, it really like I can't explain to you being able to go home and realize and and be able to tell myself like my kids literally don't care. They don't care if daddy was about to forex the fund and now he might not. They don't care what daddy's fund performance metrics are at all. They want to play with you, dad. That's what they want to do. Like they they want you to spend time with them and they wouldn't care if you were turning a wrench at discount tire. They want you to be their dad. And same thing with my wife. Like she didn't care. Like we, we've been poor before. We can be poor again. Doesn't matter. And and that that the freedom that came with that as I kind of processed through that COVID was was huge. So ha having a family like that is just it, it, I think from from an entrepreneur's standpoint, having those things at the bedrock. If if your soul's solid, if your family's solid, all those things are solid. Then the the stuff that happens above it is is no longer life or death. There's not a gun pointed to your head, and that's 
that that's, I think when you're going to function at your best. Yeah. A lot of freedom there, man. Like the psychological freedom is huge. Yeah, man. The, the, uh, the oil and gas industry has just always been so fascinating to me and right there where you are, you know, in the Permian basin, it's, uh, that's literally where I believe the United States unlocked its energy independence. And, um, speaking of freedom, I mean, that, that allowed our country quite a bit of, uh, opportunity when we started exporting energy. Yeah. I mean, the things our industry has done, I mean, I, in so many ways, we're like the, the redheaded stepchild that no one, no offense to redheaded stepchildren. I know some really good red, <laughs> redheaded stepchildren, but you know, our industry's consistently kicked and, you know, we're, we're kind of an easy target, I think in a lot of ways, but yeah, you know, the things that we've done in terms of the, the innovations that have come out of our industry, what it's unlocked for our country, most people will never understand or appreciate it. But people forget, I mean, you can look back at all the headlines dating back 50s, 60s, 70s. Oh, we're at peak oil. We're at peak oil. And you can see it, you know, in, in the in the production numbers. And, you know, starting in the mid and early 2000s when, you know, the industry figured out horizontal drilling and, and how to really dial in, how to really frack without using, you know, water that could be used for other things and all, right. all the different things that have come. It's It's pretty wild. It really is. It's wild. So, so speaking about your fund, I mean, where are you guys now? Um, what fund are you on? Are you guys raising? Our main business, actually, it's funny that given y'all's focus on kind of like the alternative universe, mm-hmm. we're actually even like oil and gas is its own alternative sector. Well, we're like an alternative sector within an alternative sector. I mean, we what we do, our main business is we we buy and own mineral and royalty interests. When we left, my partner had had cut his teeth at Crown Quest, which was a Lime Rock portfolio company. I'd cut mine at Piedra, which was an in-cap portfolio company. And those were great private equity sponsors. But we realized during our time there that private equity capital, that was not the right fit for mineral and royalty interests. So I'll try to explain to you what, what a mineral interest even is, because most people are like, okay, what exactly do you do? Like it's My wife doesn't even, she's like, I don't care, whatever. The way that the industry has evolved is... Effectively, private landowners, the day that the, that the land was patented to your great, great, great grandpa, he would have had the, the surface, the water rights, the rights to everything above and below, all the way down to the center of the earth, including the mineral rights. Well, as they started discovering hydrocarbons, especially in the Permian, the surface would get chopped up a little bit, but really you can't make a living farming or ranching like 160 acres or 80 acres. Like it, it's not going to happen in West Texas. And so, the surface wasn't nearly as chopped up, but the mineral estate would get chopped up. So they would kind of sever the minerals usually from the surface and then over generations that get passed down. So it's not uncommon for there to be a section of land or a, even a 80 acre or 160 acre tract in the Permian Basin where the minerals, the rights to the hydrocarbons subsurface are owned by a hundred different people, like in a little bitty tiny increments. And the great trade is that the way our industry works is those mineral owners don't go drill the wells. They sign leases with the operators. So say Exxon or Endeavor or Double Eagle or whoever. And the operator comes in and they deploy 100% of the capital. So if it takes you know $100 million to go drill a pad of horizontal wells in Midland County, Texas, the operator puts up 100% of the capital, does 100% of the work, and they pay... The mineral owners, co- collectively, all the mineral owners that own in, in that tract, they don't pay them 25% collectively or whatever the lease rate is of the profit. They pay them 
that percentage of the top line revenue. Okay. And, and that's you. And, and that's, that's us. And yeah. they do that into perpetuity. So if they ever, they pay for all the lease operating costs. So if a well goes down and they have to go rework it, that comes out of their pocket, not ours. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, if they ever cease paying you royalties, then the lease, you, you can void the lease and you can get those minerals back, go release them to someone else. So they can come drill wells. It literally, when I talked earlier about like discovering this concept made sense to me on a napkin, when I was like, oh, wait, so you own it. It's a deeded real asset. Like, yes. I'm like, and you put zero, you need zero debt to do this? Like, no, no debt. I'm like, and they pay you, they take all the risk. Yeah. And you get paid not on profit, but on revenue. So even if they're not making money, you're making money. Like, yeah. And sure enough, like during COVID, even when what was it? 20 bucks, 30 bucks. We still got our royalty checks every month. They were lower, but we still got them. Uh, and so it's kind of this beautiful asset class where it's a real asset. It's unlevered, but you have zero operational leverage to go with the zero financial leverage. And so if you own across a big spread of tracks and, and again, in the Permian, like in the areas we're buying, geology is not a concern. So it's not like, is there oil there or not? That's been delineated thanks to the sort of horizontal drilling revolution. But if you buy across a, a big enough number of tracks, your risk profile, it, it actually like to, to speak, you know, financial kind of the language that, that I usually can't use around here or people start rolling their eyes at me. But it really, the, the portfolio characteristics from a risk standpoint look like more what you would expect out of a fixed income portfolio in someone's allocation. But you have upside that you would expect more from an equity allocation. And so that's kind of the asset, sort of the dislocation that I love there, that asymmetry that, that drew me to it. But then it's also a super inefficient market. And there are a lot of things that are happening at any given time that are not priced in by the broader market that we know because we're living here on the ground in Midland, Texas. We're hosting the Little League draft in our conference room like, like we did last week. Or we're, you know, we're going to church with people, we're playing golf with people, we're going to lunch with people. And so those sort of advantages have, have really been key to our, our success over the last seven years. But to your question, so yeah, we, we, we raised uh, our, our first two funds in 17, 18. Uh, we raised that working interest fund in 2019. That's an evergreen fund. It's going to be continually growing and, and redeploying and distributing capital. And then we raised our third full mineral fund in 2021, deployed that in 21 and 22. And then we just launched FEP4 in September of 2023. And uh, so very, very excited about about that. And I'm happy to delve into, you know, however you want to slice it up. On Well, tell, on tell us a little bit about how that fund's structured and um, how much you guys are looking to raise and what's on the horizon maybe after that. The biggest question in the mineral space for years has been, how do you structure something that you want to own long term and you're not going to put any debt on and it has a very low risk profile? How do you incentivize the management team not to take excess risk and not to be incentivized to just to try to have a liquidity event within the first couple of years uh, if you want this to be a long-term legacy asset. And the industry's answer to that has been to have an upfront component of the carry. So very similar to some of the permanent equity structures that you would see with permanent equity in, in Columbia, Missouri, Brent B. Shores Group does something very similar. Garden City down in, in the Southeast does something very similar. But so effectively, we, you know, the management team it gets a percentage of the distributions when we start making quarterly distributions out of cash flow. 
And then once investor capital has been fully returned, then there's a sort of a back-end hurdle that the management team gets to participate in. The biggest question that I would have, had I, were I just looking at that as a family office, is, you know, okay, well, so aren't you incentivized to just go buy anything just to deploy capital because you would own a chunk of the distributions, which is a perfectly fair, legitimate question. Really, when you're thinking about structure, or when I'm thinking about structure, what we're thinking about is how do you align incentives? And how do you make sure that, that everybody's pulling on the rope in the same direction? And the biggest thing that I can think of to accomplish that is to make sure that the team is heavily invested on the same terms and conditions as the LPs. And so that's what we've done. So we, every person on our team puts a check in and our, we don't put a dollar amount on them, but the idea is it needs to be enough to make you materially uncomfortable. We think that's really important. And then the, the really, what I think is the hidden recipe is every one of the partners, mother-in-laws are, are personally invested. So I tell people, I'm like, Hey, listen, in 2020, when I was losing sleep, it wasn't over my money. It was over my mother-in-law's money going, man, how, like, I hope this goes well. And so that, that really has been a great uh, incentive liner. And we saw it with our third fund, actually. You know, we raised that in 2021 and 2022. And before we were even fully deployed in 22, we had plenty of opportunities to sell. And if we would have only had a back end, we would have absolutely pulled the trigger on that because that would have been the only way for our team to have sort of any access to the economic upside of that. But because we were getting a percentage of the distributions, well, that, that fund, I think like in 22, I think it, it was like 26% cash on cash net to the LPs. Our piece came out of that. That was net of our, of our piece. But like our team, they were, they were all very happy to keep owning the asset. And that, so they were thinking like owners, they were thinking like our LPs, hey, what's good for our LPs? And even this year, we knew that there, were, there was going to be a lot of interest in the asset that we had built. And we were able to tell potential suitors that were lobbing in offers, hey, look, guys, if y'all want to buy a piece of this, we're not even willing to sell all of it, but we might sell a piece of it. If you want to buy it, though, you're going to have to come pretty hard in the paint because our LPs are getting distributions. They're happy. Our team's getting distributions. They're happy. Like everyone's happy owning this. So you're going to have to really beat us over the head with the checkbook. And we wound up selling a chunk of that of that fund and undivided, call it, I think it was about 37% of the fund's assets that we closed on about three weeks ago. And that, okay, that yes. combined with our, yeah, well, thanks. It was, it was bittersweet. I was hesitant to let a piece of it go, but you know, we had a really wise mineral owner one time who told us, he said, I think I'm going to sell half and hope I made a bad decision. And mm. I was like, I like, I like that. I'm going to steal that Mr. Wheeler. And so we, we sold a piece and, and we're hoping we made a bad decision because that'll yeah. be great for the remainder of the assets that we have. But it also let us, get all of our investors, uh, all their money back plus a return. And so now they're, everybody's playing with house money. And, and so that, that incentive alignment really, really worked. And that was like proof positive. We could have sold earlier, even though we knew it wasn't a good time to do it. And instead we were incentivized. We, we saw the value that was coming down the pipe and, and we're able to really kind of think on, on behalf of RLPs because we effectively RLPs too. Yeah. Love it, Jordan. Well, hey, man, this is a really, really good conversation. I think we could continue talking, but, um, you know, the time is running is running near. Uh, but before I let you go, yes. you got to tell us a little bit about your um, collection that you got in the background there. My business partner has pointed out that I, I, I love arbitrage as, as much as anything. 
which okay. is why I love which is why I love minerals. So a couple of our employees introduced me a couple of years ago to to bourbon, like collecting. I, I didn't know anything about bourbon at all, like nothing. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, well, you can buy, you know, like if you can buy a bottle of Weller 12 down the street, and become friends with the liquor store manager, you can get that in Texas, but you can't get it in other parts of the country. You can sell it for, you can buy it for 25 bucks and sell it to somebody in another part of the country or trade it or whatever. And I was like, well, that sounds, that sounds interesting. And so I started doing that, buying stuff locally and trading it with guys around the country and just kind of kept Kept doing that. All of a sudden, I've I've got a, a hobby on on my hands, and uh, so it, it kind of ebbs and flows. But it's it's become a fun thing, and we, we kind of joke when when you live in Midland, Texas, you got to give people an excuse to come see you because we're four yeah. hours, five hours from everything. In the best case scenario, people for come when they're in town, they'll call us and say, "Hey, can we come by and say hi?" Just you know, maybe around four, four thirty, maybe five. We're like, ah, I see what's going on here. Like, sure, you know, <laughs> you can come by. And, and uh, and check out the bourbon collection and and have a glass. So, it to me, it's one of those things that, as you can see, most of them aren't open. I'm not I'm not a Quaker, but I'm not a huge, yeah, yeah. huge uh, huge proponent of imbibing it. Uh, but it's fun when when it can be a thing that that encourages community and relationships and that sort of thing. That's great, man. Well, good for you, Jordan. And uh, you know, we've appreciated the relationship that we've been able to build uh, with Fortress at Mammoth here and. You know, for any Mammoth partners out there, uh, we do have a profile on Fortress, so you can learn more about it in Mammoth. And, you know, I'll keep pressing on you when it's time to launch a new fund. Um, hopefully we can get that <laughs> live up on our platform. Um, but, you, you know, this is just some of the stuff that we try and do there when we work with so many advisors and family offices that are looking to allocate capital for for their clients and looking for unique opportunities. And this is definitely one. I was just at a conference and Joe Duran, who's a well-known name and in, in the financial sure. services specifically in the RIA world he sold united yeah. capital to goldman i just listened to him speak and he talked about the most neglected demographic of investor is the investor that sits between 5 million and 15 million yeah at 15 million they're just on the bottom edge of being eligible to have a private wealth management firm service them or even maybe start to be entertained by a multifamily office and at 5 million, they deserve more resources. They deserve more opportunities like we're talking about right now. But the RAs that are servicing them treat a five or a seven or even a $9 million client the same way they do a $1 million client. And they're trying to automate everything and achieve scale. And um, sometimes it's, you got to do more. So he talked a lot about that. And uh, Bain's done a lot of research too for that demographic that's you know, they need to be allocating to opportunities like this. They need to be looking at things that aren't publicly available. I think that you did a great job, Jordan, of educating our audience and, and opening up maybe a, a new opportunity, you know, that they should be looking into. So for anybody interested, you know, check out Fortress. Well, uh, you're kind. Thanks for having me on and big, uh, big fans of what you guys are doing. And we need to get you, we need to get you out here to the tall city. Yeah, man. Get you out here in Permian, get you out on a drilling rig, show you, show you, you know, how the West was won. I love it, man. I love to, uh, I'm a motorcyclist, so maybe I'll have to do a little jump on my, jump on my GS and do a little ride out to, I'm sure I could find a fun way to get to Midland. There are definitely plenty of places (laughs) in West Texas that is a lot of fun to ride, that it would be a great ride. So yeah, come on out. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Jordan. Yeah, and absolutely. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Alternative Universe. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by Mammoth Technology and produced by Turncast. 
If you like the show and consider sharing it with a friend, uh, you can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this episode right now. For more information on Mammoth Technology and Alternative Universe, you can visit us at mammothtechnology.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered advice. The participants may have financial interests in the companies discussed on the podcast.